Turn uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 once again, and we are found our way down to verses 8, 8 through 12, and following the great apostle, Jesus' messenger. So if you want to know what Jesus would have you know, there's a very simple way to find that out, is just read his messengers. Okay, that's what an apostle is, one who is a messenger, a special messenger. So if you really want to know what Jesus would have you know, you must read the writings of his apostles. He chose them, he gifted them, he trained them, he said, you will be with me, he was with them, and he promised a special measure of the Holy Spirit upon them. And he promised that he would bring to their remembrance all things that he had said. And that he would give them the spirit that they might literally bear witness of him. He fully equipped them. So you can't ignore the writings of the apostles without ignoring Jesus Christ. You understand that? You can't separate that. That's his authority. So may God help us not to pick and choose. (laughs) Okay, so we're we're at the feet of one of his great apostles here in this wonderful letter of of 1 Peter here that we've been working our way through. We're just allowing the letter to focus our minds, focus our minds on what the words of God say. So today we're up to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. And uh, most of our thinking this morning is principally going to come from 1 Peter 3, 8. But let's begin by reading 1 Peter 3, 8 through 14. And it's helpful to see the forest from the trees sometimes. And so we'll talk about the forest a little bit, and then we'll go focus on one tree in a moment. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, Be tender-hearted, be courteous, or be humble, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So there's the next paragraph for us. And verse 8 summarizes Peter's teaching on the Christian character we need to uphold in the community There's five things listed there in verse 8. And he's focusing now, not so much with about our relationship with the world, but now he's focusing inward into the body of Christ. And he lists five different things right there in verse 8 that all are exercised inside the church. And so, do we have the character... To survive the hostility of the world and actually maintain a worthy witness of Jesus Christ before the world. In other words, we need to do the things in verse 8 to enable us to live in a hostile world. That's the connection in this passage. That's where it's going. If we're going to survive the hostility of the world, it's going to depend on whether we can live as the body of Christ as he describes in verses 8 and 9. That's going to be what is going to 
hold us together under hostility. And I want to back up a little bit at the whole larger context. Back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, we had the instruction of how we are to relate to the structures in our society. Okay, to the king and the governor sent by him. In chapter 2, 18, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 7, which we've just completed, that guides our conduct within our households. Masters, slaves, husbands, wives. The conduct in our households. In verse 8, we have these qualities that we should display in the Christian community. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be humble. That's five adjectives, five adjectives that exhort us, <laughs> that encourage us to live in a certain way. He's talking about the type of people we ought to be in those five adjectives. Beyond this list, the virtues in verse 9 come in. We are called to return blessing in response to receiving evil. Let no one return evil for evil. I mean, that's as easy as falling off a log. <laughs> right? Not hard to fall off a log. It's not hard to return evil for evil. But let no one live that way. And reviling for reviling, that too is as easy to do as falling off a log. We are called to do the opposite, but blessing instead. So they've got five, six, seven. Okay, we're up to seven descriptions now. Verses 10 and 12, we are reminded that the Lord is against even Christians who do evil. Verses 10 and 12. If you do evil... Doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not, the Lord's going to oppose you in that. That's for our good. Finally, in verses 13 and 14, we are assured that no real harm will come to us if we become followers of what is good. Nothing truly bad, truly bad, can happen to you while you're following what is good. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with His people. Okay? Now, they may martyr you. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. I'll show you who to fear. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Okay? So, Peter, you see, is reflecting Jesus' teaching when he makes that kind of a statement. You see, who can harm you if you prove to be followers of what is good? The answer, of course, is, well, no one can. But being followers of what is good does not isolate us from suffering for righteousness' sake. Well, I thought if I took the right stand, I would have some kind of blessing. <laughs> well, you did. You, you were blessed by being called to suffer. That's what Jesus says, correct? Okay. Wow. This is a high calling. You can tell Peter was with Jesus. It's so evident as you read this letter, if you know the Gospels. You just know Peter just saw this day in and day out. The things that Peter, especially in verses 10 through 14, the things that he's describing there, he saw that behavior day in and day out as he lived with the Lord Jesus. He never saw Jesus return evil for evil. He never saw Jesus return reviling for reviling. He saw Jesus bless his enemies and respond kindly to their hatred. He saw all of that day after day after day. And that's why he can write like this. It's truly transforming to be like Jesus. So those are the things that are going on in the context. So let's go back. Let's just begin with verse 8. 
we got plenty there. And look at these exhortations. Finally, all of you. That's how he begins. These five exhortations apply to everyone. Everyone in the believing community. Finally, all of you, regardless of their roles, genders, or relations to one another. Whether you are the governors, or you are the ones sent by the king. Or you are the governed. It doesn't matter. All of you, whether you're the king or the governors or the ones governed. All of you. Okay, picks them all up. Whether you are the masters or whether you are the servants. Whether you are the wives or the husbands or the children. All of you are exhorted to demonstrate the character and actions described in the following five expressions. All of us. You know, perhaps you've squeezed through most of chapter 2.18 down to chapter 3, verse 7, and you've managed to squeeze through, and you're not actually in any one of those. You're not a king, you're not a governor, you're not a master, you're not a slave, you're not a husband, you're not a wife. Okay? Ah, I made it. I squeezed through all of those. Well, you can't squeeze through this one. Because Peter says, finally, all of you. Okay, so these are general characteristics for all of us in the body of Christ. Okay, we're not commanded to love unbelievers as brothers, right? Love as brothers, that's not talking about our relationship to unbelievers. The command love as brothers, they're not our brothers. So these verses here have an emphasis about inside the body of Christ. Okay, So there are five traits here in verse 8. So beginning with be of one mind. Be of one mind. Now, as we're looking at those five things, notice first that the relationship between the members of the church is crucial. All five of these traits have to do with how we interact with others in the body. All five of them. They all have to do with how you and I interact with one another. Every one of those traits. So, there's no room for isolationism. We cannot do any of these five, which we are exhorted to do, if we isolate ourselves from the body of Christ, the church. We shouldn't isolate, nor should we allow one another to isolate. You can't do all five, you can't do any one of those five things listed if you're isolated from your brothers and sisters. And so personally, we should not isolate, nor should we allow one another to do that. You get it? How do you do? You can't do any of those five things by yourself. You can't. Show compassion. Oh, what are you going to do? Show compassion on yourself? (laughs) Love as brothers? Oh, well, I'm going to just do self-love. Get that one done. Be of one mind? Well, I'm just all by myself. I don't care about anybody else's mind. You can't do any of those things without really functioning as Brothers and sisters in the Lord. So, be of one mind with one another. Be of one mind about what? Well, the central truths of the gospel for sure. The doctrine that Peter has already written in this letter. Be of one mind about the central truths of the gospel, and without going too far afield on this subject, I would only say that this one-mindedness is based upon the truth that there is only one God. Now that works, right? One-mindedness, one God. Okay, so we're going to be of one mind that there's one God. There's only one God, and that's going to start to form our one-mindedness, isn't it? Okay? Well, we know more than that, don't we? Not only is there only one God, this God is unchanging. 
Not only that, we know that this one God, what, has revealed himself in his one and only unique Son to humanity. There's only one God, you worship one God, well, who is he? Well, that one and only God has revealed himself in his one and only one-of-a-kind Son. Okay? So we need to be of one mind about those things. Our one-mindness must center in personally knowing and worshiping this one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. That is the center of our unity. And that's the center of our proclamation. So who are we to be of one mind with? All of you be of one mind. All right? You know, it's easy to do this command if you just get to pick and choose who to be of one mind with. You know what we call that? A click. That's what we call that. We just pick and choose. Okay, I'm going to be of one mind. Not with you, you know. Not with Vince. I'm not going to be of one mind with Vince. Sorry, Vince. Maybe with John I'll be of one mind with John. No, no. Who are we to be of one mind with? We're to work on that all with one another. That's who we're to be, strive to be of one, of one mind with. All of us, all of you, okay? It's not an option for us not to be or to pursue and to pursue one-mindedness with one another. One-mindedness is to be pursued. Now, we need to go further and attempt to define what I'm calling New Testament one-mindedness. No doubt, this is a delicate and difficult subject. Actually, this is more difficult than the male-female roles and stuff in the earlier verses. Some of those things are pretty clear. This issue of unity and one-mindedness in the church and in the body of Christ, it's a delicate, difficult issue. So I'm, I'm acknowledging that. Now, what is this New Testament one-mindedness? And Now, I think a concrete example can help us get some idea of what New Testament one-mindedness actually looks like. An example is better than abstract definition. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 14 and 15 for a moment. And we're going to have an example of New Testament one-mindedness. And go to Romans 15, and then we'll back up a little bit. Romans 15, verses 5 through 7. And when we get there, we have another New Testament exhortation to one-mindedness. And it reads this way, Now may the God, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be, to be like-minded toward one another. So there it is, okay? Paul's actually praying for this Roman church that God would enable them to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may, what, with one mind, okay, there it is again, with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, there is a like-mindedness prayed for and an exhortation there. So, now, when you understand that these verses I've just read to you are the conclusion of Romans chapter 14 verse 1, all the way down to chapter 15, verse 6. It's the conclusion of that discussion. And when you realize that, you realize that the like-mindedness of which Paul is speaking cannot mean we agree on every matter. It can't possibly mean that. Why am I saying that? Well... Now go back to Romans 14, and I'll give you just one sample out of there. Romans 14, verses 5 through 6. One person esteems one day above another. 
another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. (laughs) Each one is on this matter of the days, right there going on in the Roman church, you had guys who said, every day's alike. And you had others say, no, there are certain days that are different. And it, a certain day should be esteemed and treated as different. And other guys said, no, they're all alike. And you know what Paul tells them? Split. Go off and form churches around that question. No, he doesn't tell them that at all. He says, hey, be fully convinced in your own mind. And it's perfectly fine if you come to different conclusions. That's exactly what he said. You be convinced in your own mind, and then you follow that. So when we get down to verse chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, that one-mindedness cannot possibly mean We all agree on everything. No, it doesn't mean that. They're both fully convinced in their own minds. I didn't even read the rest of it. You know, he who eats, you know, two particular things that that church was working on. He who observes the day, now listen to this, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. They both do an act of devotion with their different convictions. He who eats, now this is another issue he brings up. There's at least three going on in this church. This next one is about food. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. They don't agree. They practice differently. They're both fully convinced in their own minds with opposite conclusions on the particular matter. They have opposite conclusions on whatever the matter happens to be. And yet, it's an act of obedience for both of them to follow their convictions. Now that's New Testament one-mindedness. Charles Darrell, commenting on the Peter passage, made this comment. Unity does not require uniformity in the New Testament. That is a wise saying. New Testament, he didn't put the word New Testament in front of it, but I will. New Testament unity does not require uniformity in the New Testament. It's much more subtle than that. Being of the same mind, and this is Darrell, being of the same mind is not predicated on simple agreement with others. End quote. That's wise. That's wise observation. And when you read your New Testament, I think you'll see that that's true. Now, as English readers, something else we are likely doing as English readers, when we hear the phrase, be of one mind, is we think of objective intellectual agreement. That's what we naturally think when we hear that word. Be of one mind means we all think the same. (laughs) In English language, often that is what that would mean. But the BDAG lexicon gives two additional definitions for homophoron. That's the Greek term there. Homophron is the Greek term. Homo meaning same. Homophron, it gives three definitions for that term in various contexts. One of them is one-minded. But it gives two more definitions. United in spirit and harmonious are two additional definitions of homophron. Now that's quite a bit different from the narrow way we understand the concept of one-mindedness. 
united in spirit, harmonious. And I'm not alone in this understanding. Both the New American Standard and the New English Translation translate homophron in 1 Peter as harmonious. I'll read it to you from the New American Standard, which is a formal equivalent translation, by the way. Well, both of those are. New American Standard. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble. Now, that sounds a little different, doesn't it, to the English ear. All of you be harmonious. Now, that, boy, that that brings in more than just bare intellectual agreement, doesn't it? And I think that's correct. And they, they chose that. There's three meanings there they could have chosen from, if, we, if we're going by that BDAG lexicon. They could have chosen three different meanings. And that's the meaning those translators chose. Be harmonious with one another. So, what are we doing? We're thinking about New Testament one-mindedness, is what we're thinking about. We're trying to absorb the thoughts that we find in the New Testament about this matter. So we're studying the definition and usage of some of these terms. What then? Well, in order to achieve the like-mindedness of Romans 15, 5-7, we are expected to practice the exhortations in chapter 14, verse 1, down to 15, verse 6. You see what I'm saying? That passage ends with the commands to be like-minded, be of one mind. That's the conclusion. Receive one another. Well, how in Paul's letter do we get there? We get there by following the admonitions of all through chapter 14 down into chapter 15. That's how we achieve that like-mindedness. Now, before I leave Romans, and some of you know what's in there, some of you don't. If you don't know what's in there, you should read that. But I will point out to you, Paul does kind of a literary device here. And Romans 14.1, I I hope you turn there. Romans 14.1, there's a technical term. It's an inclusio. He does this inclusio. They're like bookends. He begins the subject with one bookend, He pursues that subject, and then he wraps it up with the same bookend at the end. And so, what do we begin? We begin with Romans 14. Receive one who is weak in faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Receive this person, but don't receive him because... We're going to get in a, we're going to straighten this guy out about doubtful things. We got it straight. He doesn't. But we're going to receive him in order to have a discussion about the doubtful things. That's how this passage starts. Okay? And there's a lot of different nuances of how you translate verse 1 of chapter 14. But, I want you to focus on the reception part. That's the inclusio. Receive one who is weak in the faith, and so forth. And now you go down to chapter 15, and verse 7 is the ending. Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us. Wow. I'll tell you this, when Christ received me, I had all kind of wrong things thinking in my head. (laughs) And he received me just the same, didn't he? And you are no different. So that whole passage starts with that issue. Receive one another. Not just to have arguments about questionable things. And it ends with receive one another as Christ has received you. And the hard work that needs to be done is everything that's in between those two statements. That's the hard work that needs patiently to be done is what's in between those two statements. So that's New Testament like-mindedness according to Romans is that whole situation there. Now, 
we can't turn this into a topical series, or I'm not planning to. We could, but <laughs> I don't know. We might. I don't know. That's a decision for all of us as elders. Now, of course, of course, the fundamental doctrines of the faith are not matters of liberty, of conscience. And in Romans 14 and 15, there's a lot of issues going on there about respecting conscience, and our consciences aren't all just, you know, right on top of each other. But we're not saying we're going to take that principle and drive that into every doctrine of the Christian faith. No, that, that's not true. Why? Because our Bibles show us there is such a thing as apostasy. There is such a thing as denying the faith. There are fatal errors, all right? Okay? And so, no, that's not a matter of conscience. <laughs> so don't think that I'm going there. You know, if you desire to know what this church confesses as those fundamentals, those fundamental requirements, then look at our church membership booklet. And it very explicitly says these are the fundamentals. There's a list in there that we consider the absolute essential doctrines of the Christian faith. That if a person persistently denies things in that list, persistently, even after given instruction. Let's say someone denies the physical resurrection of Christ, or they really have trouble with that. Okay, and they say they're a Christian. You know what? Let's begin right there. You say you're a Christian. Okay, we'll go with that. And now let's study the resurrection on the pages of the New Testament and on the lips of Jesus and Paul. And we do that, and we study it, and we do it, and we show the scripture, and we keep, and the person says, you know, I get it now. Praise the Lord. But after repeatedly trying to help that person, exposing them to the Word of God, and they say, no, I don't think Jesus rose from the dead. Okay. No, you're not going to sit at the Lord's table with us. We want you to stay with us and hear the gospel. But you are persisting in denying one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. That's how we would do that. And you can read our membership booklet, and it's very clear. We're not ashamed to openly confess where we think the line should be drawn. Now, should every church draw the line where we draw it? No, I'm not going to do that, right? We're not going to do that to other churches. Now, let's see if they draw the line exactly where we draw it. No, no. I'm not responsible for those guys. They're not responsible for us before Christ. So all churches may not draw the line the same way. Now, I do think... All churches should openly confess where they believe that line is and be willing to say where that is. And before you join a church, you ought to see where that line is. So, I needed to say that. So, I think, you know, based on this analysis... Romans 14 and 15, and we could go other places too, but we won't. I think we need to adjust our thinking a little bit about what one-mindedness looks like in practice in the body of Christ. And we need to try to align ourselves more in that direction, what it looks like in the New Testament. Now, moving on, there is much to hinder the right kind of one-mindedness. There's a lot that can hinder that. On the one hand, there is the no truth is possible and doctrine divides. Just tone down the doctrinal content of your ministries. Let's find unity in experience or feeling. Okay? Early Protestant liberalism was actually like that. Let's find unity in, in experiencing God. Okay, and how we feel. Let's just find our unity in that. And don't get too objective. Okay? Now, such surely is wrong. That's the wrong kind of one-mindedness. Very wrong. You know, in order to do that, you have to mute the doctrinal teaching of many passages of your Bible to do that. The only way to practice that kind of unity is to... You know, this book is full of doctrinal objective passages. <laughs> and if you're going to make your unity just around experience, you're just going to, you're just either going to ignore those passages or ignore that 
they mean what they mean. You just can't do that. And of course, churches that have gone that route, that's exactly the, the outcome. Is you've got to mute all the objective teaching in the Bible. So that, that isn't good. But on the other hand, there's the other extreme of, um, as I've already said, is that we take one-mindedness to mean only intellectual agreement on a long list. And we find ourselves in Romans 14 being reproved by Paul. Right? That's the other the other problem. Can't do that either. It is delicate, isn't it? Third hindrance is our own sinfulness hinders one-mindedness. The New Testament kind of one-mindedness, our own sinfulness. You see, we may pursue one-mindedness as a means of self-affirmation. I want to be secure that I'm doing what is right So I need to find as many people as possible to agree with me as I can. This is subtle, but it's real. And you can find out because people are threatened. And when they get really threatened, when you challenge what they think, this kind of thing is going on. They're getting really threatened because I want to know that I'm right, and what I'm hanging on to is what I want, And you're coming along, and you're kind of shaking that. And they get really threatened. Well, what what are they afraid of? I'm not going to strangle you or something. Or you're not going to strangle me. What am I? If I'm reacting that way, what am I afraid of? I mean, can I not handle not someone not agreeing with me? (laughs) Well, if we're really insecure in what we believe, that's what happens. That's what happens. And when your beliefs are challenged, you get very threatened. So I don't know. That, it's subtle, but it's real. And uh, fourth, hindrance. There is a satanic assault on unity of sound churches. Let me, let me explain this. There's a satanic attack, not on apostate churches. We'll talk about that in a moment. There is a satanic focus on sound churches. Satan no longer needs to assault a church like, I'll say it, Andy Stanley and all what's unfolding there. He doesn't need to assault a church like that in Georgia. Go for it! (laughs) Put out your conference! Show people that Christians are like this. Go for it. Satan doesn't need to attack a place like that. He's finished. Satan's moving on. Or like Rob Bell's Love Wins Universalism type of church, right? Love Wins Universalism. Everybody's going to be saved. Satan's done. He's pulled out. They're just fine on their own as far as Satan's kingdom. He doesn't spend his time there any longer. Right? You know, Satan sowed the seeds. You know, there was an article, the train has left the station. My response, I agreed with the article, but my response was, the train left the station a long time ago. People just didn't see it. When the Old Testament begins to be jettisoned, the train's already left the station. And and in both of these examples, that's fully the case. No, the train left the station quite a while ago. Satan doesn't need to hang out there any longer, though. It's on the tracks full speed ahead. So there is a satanic attack on sound churches. And there's, there's even practical reasons for that. We take the Word of God seriously. All of it, right? And boy, there are some difficult, hard passages in this book. We take it all seriously. And Nathaniel is you know, dealing with Joshua in the Sunday school. Those are difficult passages in Joshua. The whole concept of holy war. And what that involved. And that God not only allowed it, but God commanded it. Those are difficult 
And since we have a high doctrine of Scripture, we say we can't just write that out of our Bibles, you see. But that leaves us open to have more tension and conflict because of difficult passages in Scripture. So there's a vulnerability by just taking all of Scripture seriously. There's a very vulnerability right there to the right kind of one-mindedness. Because a lot of people, oh, I don't care about that. I don't care about that either. Let's go on. We're not, none of us can be like that. Not if we have the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit, we love all of the Word of God. Right? And we know our Lord and Jesus talked about every word out of God's mouth. So we're not going to ignore some of God's words. But that exposes us to other temptations then, doesn't it? So there's different kinds of hindrances. That was my last one. There's a satanic attack on sound churches. Same is true regarding seminaries in America. Blame this one on Nathaniel too. Satan enrolled in certain schools and graduated with honors. <laughs> but there's certain seminaries, you know, Satan's enrolled. He, they, they, he graduates with honors. And then he moves on to another seminary that, you know, half of its professors are already compromised and the other half aren't. So there is a satanic attack on this matter of unity. There's few better ways to destroy Christ's church than this issue. There, there, there really are. So we... We have to work at it and plead for God's, God's help and for Christ's help on these matters. So, uh, let's wrap up with some quick applications. So, what are we doing to promote and maintain this one-mindedness of the New Testament variety? What are we doing? One, be open that whatever the subject be, the subject should be patiently examined in the light of all Scripture. That's just part of how we ought to live. Be open to do that. Patiently examine the light of all Scripture. Realize that certain passages of Scripture are just very difficult to resolve down to a single interpretation. All right? I can remember in my early years feeling, well, I gotta, I gotta preach in this passage and I'm still not sure what this means. And then to make it worse, I get two of my most respected exegetes. Oh no! They don't agree! <laughs> I love it nowadays when that happens. I hope you all have that experience. You should read enough and you should get attached to certain authors enough. And you should find the places where your favorite authors disagree with each other. There's something maturing about that experience. <laughs> so that's my second thing. We realize that certain passages of Scripture are just very difficult to resolve down to a single interpretation. I'm not criticizing the Word of God. I believe in the clarity of Scripture. So third, be patient and be sure we've understood the reasoning of our brothers and sisters before we simply disagree with them and quote our proof text. Okay, that's the ideal, that we be patient and we actually understand and, and maybe we can actually articulate the other position ourselves. I loved it when I preached through Romans 11.26 in our Romans series. I was a little unkind because I pretty much convinced you all of one interpretation, and I didn't tell you I was going to do this. And then I said, well, now let's try a different interpretation. And then I went, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I convinced you of the other interpretation on what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? That's the text. So I went all the way through that and convinced you of one interpretation. It's a pretty sound argument. But then I went, I went all the way through the other argument, and it's like, mm. I'm not sure which of those arguments was the strongest. Okay? And if you'd like me to do that for you, come and talk to me, and I'll do that for you out of Romans 11.26. And thus all Israel will be saved. What does that mean, that phrase? And that's just an example of some texts are just plain difficult. All right. Don't make agreement on everything the basis of fellowship between yourself and other individuals. Okay, you're, 
You know, you're not going to fellowship with very many people if you make agreement on everything. <laughs> the basis of your, of your fellowship with one another. Now, I save the most significant thing for last. Back into Peter's context. Last but most significant, we promote being of New Testament one-mindedness by practicing the remaining things which Peter mentions in verses 8 through 11. Do we practice these things toward those we don't fully agree with intellectually? Having compassion for one another, do we do that toward those we don't agree with? Having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Love as sisters. Be tender-hearted. Be humble. Not reviling evil for evil. I mean, some of the online stuff, I'll be blunt. It's like a swamp. It's disgusting. Okay? And it's professed Christians just engaging in reviling one another. And the world says... I don't have anything to do with those people. Okay? Yeah, that whole, that whole list right there, that has a lot to do with the New Testament concept of one-mindedness. Following and functioning like those things describe. And so may the Lord help us. So the oneness, the oneness in the church is more beautiful than just an intellectual or confessional oneness. As good as these things are, a confessional oneness, as good as those things are, all men don't know we are Jesus' disciples because we all confess the same doctrine. No. They know we are Jesus' disciples because we love one another. And the very occasion of this difficulty is an opportunity for that love to be manifested. Right? That's right. The very occasion of doing that Romans 14 type of stuff is a very occasion for that love of one another to be manifested. And love comes up in that chapter 14. No, they'll know that we're His disciples if we have love for one another. Jesus prays. Thank God Jesus prayed for us. <laughs> Jesus prays for the unity of His followers this way. That they all may be one. Now that, that's big, okay? I, I'm just tackling, you know, one local church. <laughs> Christ church, though, is much bigger than this one local church. And that's a whole other subject. I'm focused more on us. But Jesus prays that they all may be one as you, Father, and I. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they all may be one. What? That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Is there any more important doctrine that Jesus is the sent one from the Father? I say no. I don't think there's any more important doctrine in our Bible than that. That this man, Jesus, whom we call the Christ, is the sent one from the Father to humanity. And Jesus says, we need this unity that the world may recognize that cardinal doctrine. Wow! Did He say that? He did say that. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe 
that you sent me. Disunity seriously undermines a church's witness to the world. The right kind of one-mindedness strengthens the church's witness of the most fundamental truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the sent one from the Father. This is serious stuff. May God help us have a like-mindedness according to Scripture. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, thank you for your words, all of them. And we thank you how those words have led us to your Son, the one whom you have sent to be our light and truth and redemption. All of these things. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive me. Surely, I have done plenty things that have made unity difficult in times and circumstances or have not pursued it. Lord, forgive us if we have done those things. Help us learn a better way. Lord, protect us from selling out so that our train doesn't leave the station. Lord, in that regard, help us. But also, Lord, help us avoid the other end of centering our unity around things you've never called us to center it around, Lord. Lord, we know that everything is important. All the things in your word are healthy and necessary. So help us cling to that. Lord, you know better than we. We just ask you to bless us with a greater measure of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are our wonderful shepherd. Father, we pray in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.